What Was That Like? contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Very few things in life could be more traumatic or horrifying than discovering a suicide. The world was shocked back in August of 2014 when police announced that legendary actor and comedian Robin Williams was found by his personal assistant having committed suicide. This was the police announcement on that day. On August 11, 2014, at approximately 11.55 a.m., Marin County Communications received a 911 telephone call reporting that a male adult had been located unconscious and not breathing inside his residence. The caller was distraught and indicated at that time that was in an apparent suicide due to a hanging had taken place and that rigor mortis had set in. The Sheriff's Office, as well as representatives of the Tiburon Fire Department and Southern Marin Fire Protection District were dispatched to the incident with emergency personnel arriving on scene at 12 p.m. The male subject, who was pronounced deceased by firefighters from the Tiburon Fire Department at 12.02 p.m., has been identified as Robin McLaurin Williams, a 63-year-old resident of unincorporated Tiburon, California. Preliminary information developed during the investigation by coroner division personnel has revealed Mr. Williams had been seeking treatment for depression. Mr. Williams was last seen alive by his wife at approximately 10.30 p.m. on August 10th, 2014, when she retired for the evening in a room in the home. Mr. Williams' personal assistant became concerned at approximately 11.45 a.m. when he failed to respond to knocks on his bedroom door. At that time, the personal assistant was able to gain access to Mr. Williams' bedroom and entered the bedroom to find Mr. Williams clothed in a seated position, unresponsive, with a belt secured around his neck, with the other end of the belt wedged between the, closet, the closed closet door and the door frame. His right shoulder area was touching the door, with his body perpendicular to the door and slightly suspended. The inside of Mr. Williams' left wrist had several acute, superficial transverse cuts. A pocket knife with a closed blade was located in close proximity to Mr. Williams. The pocket knife was examined and a dry red material was located on the blade blade of the knife which appeared consistent to dried blood. It is unknown at this time if the dried red material is in fact blood or if it is Mr. Williams' blood, but scientific testing will be conducted to evaluate its investigative value. Preliminary, and I again say preliminary, results of the forensic examination revealed supporting physical signs that Mr. Williams' life ended from asphyxia due to hanging. Toxicology testing will be conducted to determine if Mr. Williams had any chemical substances in his system at the time of his death. There are so many factors to consider in that case, but I remember that when this happened, I kept thinking about how that person, his assistant, felt as she entered that room and discovered him on that Monday morning. She had worked with him for over 20 years, and it was more than just an employer-employee relationship. They were also close personal friends. It's hard to imagine going through something like that. Our guest today is Liz. She has experienced this as well. But the suicide she discovered was not her boss or just a close friend. It was her husband. Going through that would be bad enough, but for this podcast episode, Liz has even another story that's almost completely unrelated to her husband's suicide. She's been through a lot, 
Now she works trying to help people who have gone through similar tragedies. Check the show notes for links to her book and the work she's doing. A warning. This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence against a child. It's definitely not suitable for everyone. If you'd like to support this podcast and get access to all of the exclusive bonus episodes, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com support. And now please enjoy my conversation with Liz. You and your husband, Ben, how did you meet? How did your paths cross? I believe it was, well, with both Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. I can't remember which one came first. <laughs> we were both going to both meetings in the same town, and he was more of a newer entry. I think I had probably 12 years at the time when I first met him, and so he was new. And I uh, just kind of, you know, got to know him a little bit. And after about a year, because you're not supposed to date newcomers, <laughs> especially someone with a lot of time. I was actually interested in learning Hebrew. And one of our mutual friends said, Ben knows Hebrew. And I said, really? Why? Or something. He says, he's Jewish. And I said, he's Jewish. And he goes, yeah. And then I thought about, <laughs> okay, his name and some of these other things. And I was like, oh, well, yeah. So that's how we got together. We met, we dated for about a year-ish and got engaged and then we ended up getting married and having our baby. <laughs> what kind of work were each of you doing at that time? I believe through the dating, he was doing electrical and uh, he wasn't very happy with it. So after somewhere right around the time we got married, I actually helped him find a job in patient care. And uh, he was working for a, like a family owned and operated facility in St. Augustine for people that had been either mentally or physically handicapped. And he just loved it. He was a real helper. And I was working also in um, the helping fields. I was a professor for uh, the first couple of years. And then after we had our child, I got another job and it was really one of the best things for me. I went back into the clinical world and I, and I got my clinical license and uh, with my doctorate and that really helped me in my profession. So laboratory medicine is what I ended up doing afterwards. It sounds like, like the story of a happy family. Yeah. yeah. And you guys were living in St. Augustine, Florida Yeah, and life was good. Everything was really good. Yeah. I mean, we had the usual things, I guess that, young couples have. I wasn't as young as he was. We did have an age difference. I was 15 years older. But um, I mean, my mom tried to help me understand some things because it seemed like he was becoming unhappy maybe or something. And Asher was getting on to, he was two years old at that time. And my mom said, maybe sometimes men don't start to get uncomfortable when the child starts talking and being a little bit more of a person when they are much more comfortable when it's not as much of a personality involved. So it sounded like everything was going well, but mm -hmm. then there was that one Friday. Mm -hmm. Can you tell, tell us what happened that day? It was just like any other day I left in the morning and uh, he was taking, he was taking our son to to school. So I said goodbye to everybody, left. He went to work and I went to work. He had just started working on the day shift because we were trying to have our marriage a little bit back together again because we were working opposite shifts to take care of the baby by ourselves. But we realized marriage was suffering a little bit. So we both went on day shift. He was working in St. Augustine and I was working in Jacksonville. And we had a place in Jacksonville for this Sabbath for our religion for the weekend. So um, that particular one, uh, I was going to pick up Asher after work and bring him down to St. Augustine because we weren't going to be uh, doing our normal weekend thing there. <laughs> we were going to go over to Disney World that Friday night instead. And our reason was is because Asher was turning three in a couple of months, and it was going to be our last opportunity to get him into Disney World for free. 
me and Ben were big Disney World fans. And even our own, as adults, you know, that was what we loved to do. We had season tickets and everything all the time. So after Asher was born, all three of us. So anyway, I picked up Asher driving down the road. Asher fell asleep, which he had really never done. So it was a very different day, even from that point. It was like, okay, he fell asleep on the drive down. We got got to the house. Uh, actually, I tried to call Ben a couple times. I wanted to let him know that I had packed the food and all that, because even though it was the Sabbath and we weren't going to be in our usual place, I had packed all of our kosher food and we were going to go to our friend's house and then we were going to have our you know, little sort of Sabbath meal that night and go to Disney in the day on Saturday. But anyway, he wasn't answering his phone, which was unusual. And I believe I called my father, my former father-in-law, and I asked him if he had talked to Ben, and he had said, he said, no, I didn't. Why? And I said, well, because I'm trying to get a hold of him. So I, uh, I went on home, and when I got there, Asher was still asleep, and I didn't want to wake him up. And it was the first cool day out of the whole year, you know, since the summer started in St. Augustine. And I know you know about that area. And I said, well, you know, it's cool enough. I'm going to put open the sunroof, turn the car completely off. So I felt like that was safe. And I just like popped my head in the house because I figured he was going to be ready to go. We were, we were going to Disney World. Yay. You know, like so excited. And I go in and that was the first moment that I kind of understood what the term dead silence is. And it was really too silent. And I was like, Ben, are you ready to go? And I saw the door of the garage was open and the light was shining into the hallway there. And I thought he was getting the winter clothes out of the attic because I'd asked him to get the winter clothes out of the attic up in our Jacksonville home. And I, I said, uh, and he had done that. So I figured he was getting them out. So I said, what are you doing? And I, you know, I walked towards the door and I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters and the steps to the opening up there were down and his feet were about six inches sort of just, you know, slightly moving a little bit back and forth above the step. So. I just, I, I freaked out. You know, I was like, what did you do? I went to the phone. I called 911 and I must have not dialed 911 because it was busy. My mother always told me that 911 will never be busy. So I hung up the phone and I ran out the door and I screamed to my neighbors who were all out there getting ready for a big Friday night party, which they did at the end of my street every weekend. And I said, uh, Somebody get help, Ben, or call 911. Ben tried to kill himself, and I ran back in the house, and then I started trying to get him down. He had actually used the arm of one of his sweatshirts to go around his neck, and he used the other arm to tie it around a rafter. And I know it sounds unbelievable, but that's what he did. And so I really only had to just pull like one thing almost. And, and and it just loosened and he fell. And I stared at him for a couple seconds because I thought the wind was going to knock into him because he was actually warm. I knew he had just gotten home. I knew what his work schedule was and he was he was warm. And I just stared at him. I remember saying, what did you do? What did you do? And when he dropped, I was staring at him. And while I was staring at him, waiting for the air to rush into his lungs, my neighbors came running in the house. The, the wife of my next door neighbor, she, she just started yelling, drop, start doing CPR. I guess I realized I was in shock. So I had, I knew I was just trained in CPR. So I dropped to my knees over top of him and her husband had come in and he was opening the garage door, closing the garage door or something. And then she was on the phone with somebody, I think. And she was like, 15 compressions now. And then she'd be like, five breaths now. And, and I was just following her orders, you know, and I was 
just completely in shock. And then another neighbor came in and he stayed with me. And he was actually like the fiance or the boyfriend of another neighbor across the street. I didn't even know him that well, but I did get to know him very well in that moment and after. And he said, I'll do the chest compressions. And I said, I appreciate that. And so uh, I just wanted to kind of be around Ben's face and his mouth anyway. And so he started doing those and I was breathing into his lungs and we were checking the pulse and we thought we felt something very faint. And I asked him, I said, I think I feel something really faint. And my mom is a nurse and she told me afterwards that you probably felt your own heartbeat because that happens a lot. You know, you're through your fingers or whatever, because it's such... But we we were giving him CPR, and then the ambulance came and um, took him in the ambulance, and we went outside. The neighbors were all asking me, where's Asher? Where's Asher? And I looked. I said, he's in the car, and he was still asleep. Again, it was like a miracle. So I believe it was God. I do firmly believe it was my higher power, our higher power, putting him to sleep. And he still didn't wake up then. One of my neighbors said something about, you know, do you want me to take him or whatever? I said, no, he's fine. They were like, kind of like almost criticizing me. And I said, he's fine. Just leave him alone. Cause I didn't want him to see all this stuff. We were trying to reach my father-in-law then we were all outside. Everybody was like, what can I do? How can I help? And they were still working on my husband in the ambulance right on the edge of my property. I thought, and I said, please call, you know, my mother-in-law, they took my phone, call my father-in-law and then the ambulance wanted to leave. So I followed behind. My mother asked me, were the sirens on? And I said, no. And she said, he wasn't, he wasn't alive. They turned the sirens on if they were alive. So I learned a lot of things that night, but I was driving behind him hoping and thinking, you know, that we were going to see him again. I called my friend in Orlando on the way and I said, I'm not coming tonight. And he said, why? And, um, I said, because Ben tried to kill himself, you know, and that was like the first of this story, you know, that I started telling. And it, it became, you know, like every day for me for months and months on end, you know. Did he leave a note? No, he didn't. But what he did was he, he left his glasses on the counter um, of the kitchen. And let's see. Oh, I, he had told me you know, for a long time ago when we were dating that he couldn't see my face if we were even more than a foot apart. So he needed his glasses for everything. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. 
Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com what code 25what. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, weird thing was, and this is where like some of those, you know, previews or something, or these clues or hints. He was a big CSI TV show fan. And um, the Las Vegas one, they would just watched it the week before. And uh, in that one, this starts out with somebody falling from a high place. And they get to the crime scene and they're down below. One of them goes upstairs. The other one's down below. They're trying to figure out if it was a murder or suicide. And the guy like automatically says, you know, this is a suicide or something. Or they say, we got glasses up here or something. Or he saw the outline of the glasses on the bridge, but there was no glasses. And he said, well, how do you know it's a suicide right away? And he says, because if they're wearing glasses, they're glass wearers, they take them off because they don't want to see. You know, they need them to see everything else in life, but when they're going to take their own life, they usually leave them behind because they don't want to see their own death. And so it's what came to my mind when I saw those glasses on the counter. I said that was his message. And that was his message to me. The other actual message that he left me, which I don't feel very good about, but he, he took his wedding band off and he left it in the cup holder in the car before he got out of the car that night. I I don't know why he did that. You know, maybe he just didn't want it on his finger for somebody to have to take off later or something. But he he knew when he got out of that car from work what he was going to do. I was told, don't even question that. I was told that it's better, oftentimes it's better to not leave a note. Although I had a lot of questions I do believe I know everything that I need to know about why, you know, why he did what he did. Talk about opposite extremes. I mean, from happy family headed to Disney World to this unexpected death, it's no wonder you were in shock. Yeah. When that happened. So what about afterward when your your in-laws arrived into town what happened then? My sister said that that turned the trauma, I think the way she said it was, or the into a tragedy. I mean, it was worse. I mean, or the whatever it was, they made it worse. If it could possibly be imagined of that being worse, they turned that into even a worse situation. So as soon as my mother-in-law came in, well, let me just explain as far as the Jewish religion goes. We already knew what, how he died because I found him. I tried to give him CPR. So my father-in-law was there and they asked us, you know, about the body and everything. After we finally left, we were, we were there for hours and people were visiting Ben and we were saying prayers over him in the hospital room. And then they took him downstairs and we told them that they don't need to do an autopsy because... We know how he passed away, and we didn't want his body cut up. 
for our religion and we wanted to get him buried right away. We had made that decision. We told him that the next day my mother-in-law came into town and so did my mom. And I reached out to my mother-in-law and I said, you know, you, you're going to come over because this should be Shiva in the home. There should be visitation and all that stuff in the home of the bereaved family, immediate family, which is me now and Asher. She said, no, I'm in the hotel. I said, where are you? She's like, I'm in a hotel. So she wasn't even in my father-in-law's house, my in-laws, grandparent-in-laws house, you know, her in-laws. And I was like, what are you doing in a hotel? And why aren't you coming over? And she just said, we're just going to stay here. So I thought that was weird. And then um, the next day, Saturday, she didn't come over. I had all these people in and out. And then Sunday, the rabbi came to our home and then my in-laws came to speak to the rabbi about the burial and the eulogy and all this. And they, they kept saying, you know, they all, they kept, all the only thing they kept saying is Ben was so happy. Ben was so happy. Ben was so happy. So on this day, when she came over and they were talking, the rabbi asked, when are we going to get the body? And I said, it should be, you know, should be today. And he said, well, he said he heard it may have been Monday, which Monday was now another Jewish holiday. So we, we really needed to get, get Ben in the ground basically because of the way things have to be done at a certain time. Cause this is a joyous holiday and then people that are bereaved can't observe and people can't go to funerals and do things like that on certain holidays that are supposed to be joyous. So you needed to contact the medical examiner. Is that right? I did. He told me not going to be until Monday. We have to do an investigation. We have to do an autopsy. I said, why? We told you don't need to, and we don't want to. And I was almost horrified. And he said, somebody from the family called and said that they suspected foul play. And the only person that could have been was my mother-in-law or her influence because everything was fine on Friday night before she came into town. And then she came into town on Saturday and then all the way she was acting and then on Sunday. So I immediately, uh, my, my brother-in-law was the only sibling there. The sister-in-law didn't come. He was in with Asher in the back room next to where I was on the phone. And I came out into the living room and I just started, my mother said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, they said, you know, and I started just shouting it out. And I looked at my in-laws and I says, it had to be you. And they were just looking like deer in headlights scared because they are, you know, like, uh oh, we got found out. And the rabbi sitting there watching everything. And I just said, how could you do that? How could you do that to me? How could you do that to your grandson and your son and the memory of your son? How could you do that? I said, get out of the house now. I said, leave. I said, I don't want you to ever come back to this house again. I said, get off my property. And they did. They went out to the car. The rabbi said a few words to me and stayed for a little bit to console me, but that was pretty much the end of all of that. We saw them the following day at the burial. My father-in-law, when he went to hug my mom and one of my sisters, he was saying things like, it had to be an accident or it had, you know, and my mother said, this is not the place nor the time to say things like that. But he was trying to tell them that Ben didn't kill himself somehow. What was what were all the other family members? Were they in, of the opinion that it was suspicious, or did they did they know that it was actually just a, a suicide? Well, my family, of course, no problems at all. I mean, my family just watched this horrifying stuff happen, and in bewilderment. But maybe it's because we have had experience with death. You know, I lost my brother in a tragic car accident years before and and we accept even though very painful things, you know, we've had to. My my father passed away from rare form of dementia, things like that. So we have had suicide in my family as well. My grandmother's mother took her life. My uh, mom's niece, my first cousin, she took her life by hanging and now this, I, I don't know what the reason is, but it was all his side. At, at the burial, they all seemed fine, except from that point forward, that Sunday afternoon, my brother-in-law left with my in-laws. He didn't stay. And Asher lost his whole, 
his whole father's side of the family that day. So not only did he lose his dad, but he was, Asher was so close with his grandpa and with his great grandparents. And my father-in-law proceeded from that Sunday. He started telling everybody in St. Augustine recovery community that I killed Ben. He didn't ever tell my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law, Ben's grandmother didn't tell her that Ben died. They didn't even come to the funeral. I, I said, why aren't you telling grandmom that Ben died? So I didn't feel comfortable taking Asher over there because I didn't want to answer any questions about where's Ben. He told me I, I can't I can't tell her, she can't know, or something like that. And then eventually I found out somehow that he did tell her, but then he must have told her that I was instrumental in his death because she she never reached out and she actually passed away two months after Ben. What was the final report from the medical examiner? Yes, that he, he died by uh, self-inflicted, I, I think they use the word exsanguination, and they, they did find the redness around his neck of the, you know, from the sweater, sweatshirt. And the police actually uh, had to do an investigation because the medical examiner had to report that to the police. So here was the other horrible experience for me. Uh, that Monday that we buried him, I took Asher and we completely moved our daily operating life to the Jacksonville home because Ben had died in the St. Augustine home and I, I wasn't ready to, to stay there day in and day out. But I got a call on Tuesday that I had to come back to St. Augustine to meet with the police officer, let him in my home again and go over the whole story again. I had to go walk him through everything again. Because he had to do an investigation to see if it was a homicide or a suicide. For a lot of people, that would be certainly a horrific experience, that whole thing. But that's not, that's not your only story. You, this is what's incredible about this, is you have another story of something that happened completely unrelated to your husband's suicide. Fast forward four years, you met someone named Levy. Mm -hmm. how, how, did you, yeah. how did you meet him? His former mother-in-law was a member of our Jewish community in now we were in Arkansas. She was dispositioning her father who had passed away's home with all of his belongings and none of the rest of the Jewish community was helping her. And I felt you know, like I wanted to reach out a helping hand, you know, with another woman, a widow, helping another Jewish woman. So I went over her house and brought my son and and uh, helped her because it was a, a hoarder's mess. He, he was an old man from that generation, you know, back during the war, and, and he was hoarding a lot of things. So I was familiar with that from my former in-laws. And so uh, he was there. Levy was there. And I thought, boy, this must be a good guy because he's this is his ex-mother-in-law, and she never said a, a bad word about him. And, and so that's how I met him, and we started visiting, and he was in Memphis at the time. So he was coming about an, a two-hour drive between Memphis and Little Rock. So he started coming over for Shabbat, but we were kind of going to the Chabad anyway, the ultra-Orthodox community, and he was Orthodox. So we started going to services together, and and dating-ish, you know, whatever. And I really wanted somebody that could do the role of a Jewish male for my son because I wanted him to, you know, have a kind of a regular Jewish family. By now, he was probably uh, about six. So anyway, that's how we met. And then we quickly got engaged because that's kind of the way that they do it in the Orthodox communities is a little bit faster. We can zoom all the way up to two weeks before our wedding. We had ordered the, the head coverings. We had ordered the prayer books, all with our names on them. Uh, we had the rabbi, the synagogue, and everything. We had a little argument, like almost over spilled milk, pretty much literally. And I cursed, and he said, you know, God wouldn't like that. And I, I was like, you know, my curse was, you know, like, 
JC, you know, which I'm Jewish. So <laughs> it's not really a curse to me. And I, and I said that, and he was like, well, you know, it's whatever, whatever. And anyway, that's pretty much it. And then he, he said, my deceased mom, you know, wouldn't like to know that you're talking like this or whatever. And I said, my deceased dad wouldn't appreciate you giving me crap about this. He said, my mother, my deceased mom wouldn't be happy with you wearing that ring. So I said, this is not me breaking up with you. I took my engagement ring off and I put it on the table. I said, this is just me giving you your ring back. I will get a different ring because I'm not going to be manipulated by somebody because I'm wearing their parents ring. I told him point blank. I said, I'm not breaking up with you. I'm just going to get a different ring. And then he said, put the ring back on. He started ordering me. And that has happened to me before in a relationship. That's not healthy. He said, put the ring back on. And I said, no, I said, just told you. And then he said, put the ring back on. And then he said, I don't want this marriage to end up like your last marriage ended. My last marriage ended by my husband taking his life. So I just heard this guy is telling me that if I don't do what he's telling me to do, if his order, he's going to kill himself. And I just immediately red flag. And I said, now that is me breaking up. I said, now this ring off my finger is us breaking up. I said, I can't go forward with a marriage with somebody that's threatening to kill himself. And then he started trying to backpedal. And I said, no, I can't. I can't. I will never, ever, ever put me and my son in that situation ever again. Never. He drove away with as much of his car packed as he could. And he left all this stuff in my garage. And I felt very bad for him because he was upset. He was very upset. I'm sure he felt humiliated in this Jewish family and community and everything like this. And now he's crawling back to the parents' house with just his car full of stuff. So he didn't go back to Memphis where he was. He went back to his parents' place in Brooklyn. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. To the brownstone, the three-story brownstone. Two years later, I'm on Facebook on a Monday. All this uh, information on Facebook after the weekend about this little boy in Brooklyn that went missing after he walked the parents for the first time allowed the kid to walk home. He was nine. My son was about to be nine. So they were the same age. Let him walk home from the summer camp this day. Cause he begged them to please let him walk home. And they went over the route and everything, but he didn't come home when he finally did it on, on the Monday. And his name was Libby Kletsky. And the, messages was all around the Jewish community and Facebook. Pray for Libby. Pray for Libby that, that they'll find him. We're following a developing story in Brooklyn. Police in Borough Park are looking for a young boy missing now for almost 24 hours. Lebby Kletsky never came home from the Boyan Day Camp on 44th Street yesterday afternoon. Eyewitness News reporter Anthony Johnson is live in Borough Park now with the very latest. Anthony. Well, Lisa, as you can imagine, this is a parent's worst nightmare, but many people out here are still holding out hope at this hour. It's been some 19 hours since they've last seen Libby, and still at this point, and there are no clues. Libby Kletsky is described as a friendly nine-year-old and is the only son in a very large family. He has been missing since around 5 o'clock Monday afternoon. He was last seen leaving this daycare location and he was supposed to meet his mother when he disappeared. So far, everyone is perplexed. We, no one can figure this out. Assemblyman Hyken has been speaking directly to family members who are waiting for word inside of their apartment. Patrols have been spread out throughout the entire community. Groups of people searching the neighborhood looking for clues to the boy's whereabouts. They have covered a five-square-mile area since early this morning, and so far, nothing. Every building, every store, every synagogue, whatever you can think of, backyards, we're doing it all. The search is spreading, and some four to 500 people are involved. Police have rallied all of their resources and are asking anyone who saw something suspicious to call. At this point, everyone is hoping for a good outcome and hesitates to think the worst. We do hope for the best, but every hour that goes by, where is this nine-year-old? Uh, what happened? 
Assemblyman Dove Hyken and community leaders are now offering a reward of $25,000. These are some of the flyers that you can find around this community. This little child is described as being four feet tall with black hair and brown eyes, or rather brown eyes and brown hair. He is wearing black sneakers, navy pants, and a green and white shirt. Authorities say if you have any information on this child, please give them a call. Two days later on a Wednesday, I was working from home and I had the TV on and they said that they, they have a, a break in the case with Libby. And I looked at the TV and they have a picture of a car and they're talking at the same time as I'm watching this and the car, I said, that looks like Libby's car. And as I was thinking that they're saying the suspect is the, the age, 35 years old, I said, that would have been Lavy's age. And all of a sudden I'm starting to get freaked out and scared because it's in the exact same portion of Brooklyn where, you know, he was living this car. And then they said that he walked out of a dentist office and I, I knew it had to be Lavy at the time because we had talked about his teeth and we were going to get his teeth fixed when we got married with my insurance. And I thought, oh my God, what the heck? And they, sh I don't really, really even remember right now if it was that very day that they showed a picture of him or it was just that. I got a phone call about a couple minutes later from a member of the Jewish community, the president of the synagogue's wife. And she said, are you watching TV right now? I said, yeah. She said, that's Levy. And I said, I, I said, I, I'm, I'm in shock. Are you? Really, I was wondering, she said, I think it is. I think it is. So sure enough, within, it seemed like it was hours, they had picture of him up there. Uh, and it was, and he was being arrested. And they, they started calling him the butcher of Brooklyn because his profession was an actual kosher butcher. So they did have the cameras and it was a member of the Jewish community there, the Chabad, ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, because this little boy was a, was a Chabad uh, member of the Chabad community. This man who always was protecting the community and, and always did really extensive work, more than the police often had time to do. He went to the stores and started knocking on them before the police did. And he said, he asked for all the film and the footage. And that's when he saw Libby asking a man in the video, there was no sound. They, they saw him at, approach a man that had a kippah and the tzitzis, the fringes, the tassels of the prayer shawl underneath his shirt because he was Orthodox. So the little boy looked at Levy and thought, he's safe. I can talk to him. He asked him for directions is what it turned out to be. Levy ended up telling the whole story after he was arrested. And then he went into the dentist office. He's just told the little boy to wait. And so the man in the Jewish community that was watching these videos overnight, he just stayed up all night long. And and before the cops ever got any of this, he took it all to the cops. And he, he saw that Libby stood there and waited for Levy to go in, pay his bill, come back out. And then he got into Levy's car. And Levy was on his way to a wedding. Uh, he went to the wedding. There's people. They've interviewed the people at the wedding. They said Levy was there. He stayed for a short time. They never saw the little boy. So it turns out he left him in the car and the little boy stayed because I guess Levy was telling him, I'll take you home after. You know, just got to go run this errand or whatever. Well, he, Levy's story is, is that when he got home that night, it was too late. So he got up the next morning, which was now Tuesday morning, because all this was happening on Monday. Tuesday morning, he went to work. He stayed at work. He worked a regular regular shift, and they interviewed all those people. And then when he came home on his walk back home, he saw all the posters everywhere. And he felt like, in Levy's words, that he was going to be in trouble. He did. Now, I will say that he did tell me when we were engaged that he had a head injury when he was a youngster. Levy, I'm mean, sorry. Yes, this is Levy Aaron, had a head injury when he was younger. and. He did seem to have some mental impact to that, but I always thought when we were engaged, I always thought, well, I'm really smart, so I got enough smarts for the both of us, so it didn't bother me. I, I, wasn't, worried, I wasn't worried about that, but I never knew that he had like a 
personality disorder or anything like that. And I did find out after he was arrested that he did have a diagnosis in Memphis that I was never told about. So he saw those posters and thought, wow, something. He got scared. Mm -hmm. And he went home and and he he, uh, crushed up some of his pharmaceuticals, uh, some of his medication. He put him in a tuna fish sandwich and he fed the medication to the little boy and that anesthetized him. And then he took a pillow and he suffocated him. And then he chopped off his feet, put his feet in his freezer for some reason. And I believe that he may have done something with the rest of the Libby Kletsky's body. I want to make sure I say his name and put him in a suitcase and carried the suitcase down to the dumpster a couple blocks away. And that was on Tuesday night. So on Wednesday, when they arrested him, he just he just showed them where everything was. And he, he just told them that, you know, he got scared and he didn't feel like he could take him back or he'd get in trouble. So he, he did what he did. They started coming to interview me and um, calling me because his ex-wife in Memphis gave them an indication that he was engaged to somebody in Little Rock and she may have even given them my name. Part of the investigation was to talk to you about what was he like, or did he give any indication that he could do something like this, or was that kind of what they were asking? Yes, it really was. They said the police told me when they called me that nobody goes from zero to a hundred overnight, and I said, "I don't think my testimony is going to help you with your case." I said, "I do believe that he did go from zero to a hundred. And they said, "Are there any signs?" I said, I, "I said you need to come and talk to me if you want to talk to me. I didn't want to be on the phone with them." And I, I, I wanted to separate and distance Asher from all of this as much as possible, which I actually had been successful at doing for uh, that long. So they came, they did, they flew down. Um, I went to a, a different friend's house, like two hours away from my home in Little Rock. And we hosted the the police officers and they asked me and they, they asked me all these questions. Like they said, Oh, we found a box of little girls clothes. So they're trying to figure out that he was a sexual pedophile or something like that. And there were other bodies or other babies or other kids somewhere. And I said, he had told me when he was moving that he had found a box of his sister's clothes, the sister that died the year that we were dating. I said, so that's my belief is that those clothes are from his sister. And I'm sure he kept them for sentimental value because I know he had, he told me that he had little baby clothes of his own too. His mother died five years before I started dating him. So I don't think the father was keeping the kid's baby clothes. So I think Levy was keeping his own baby clothes, maybe for his child whenever he had one someday. And then, you know, I told him there was never anything with my son and his ex-wife in Memphis. She testified as well. She had kids too. We were all just completely shocked that this happened. What was the outcome of his case? My I, my understanding is, is that he didn't ever end up fighting it. You know, I think that the lawyers probably for him tried to, you know, do some kind of insanity, but I don't believe that there's the death penalty in New York. And if there is, they, he didn't get that. So Aaron, is there anything you wish to say before I impose the agreed upon sentence? The sentence of the court on your plea guilty to murder in the second degree is 25 years to life. On kidnapping in the second degree, 15 years in jail, followed by five years post-release supervision. These sentences shall run consecutive, meaning a minimum of 40 years before you would be eligible for parole. The family of the little boy does does have a... Um memorial or a fund that anybody can contribute to. Have you contacted him at all since then? I have actually thought about it, but I, I I don't want to appear to be sympathetic, I think is mainly the reason why, but I don't even really know what to say, but I, I have thought about it, but I haven't acted on it. Hey, this is Scott jumping in here for just a minute. It makes perfect sense that Liz has not tried to communicate with Levy since he has begun serving his long sentence in prison. Because it's true, what is there for her to say? 
But for me, as part of putting together this episode, I decided to reach out to Levy. I really had no idea what he would say, and obviously nothing he would say would justify what he did that day, but I still wanted to get his perspective. I contacted him at Attica Correctional Facility in Attica, New York, where he's being held. I asked him for his comments on what happened, and this is the message he sent back to me. I'll start by saying this incarceration had nothing to do with my relationship with Liz. It is a little hard for me to talk about it. I acted on a bad hallucination of something that happened to me three years prior to this case. I am trying to change and get better. Hopefully the poor old board will see that in 28 and a half years from now. The incident that happened to me was in 2008, before I met Liz. Anyway, for that incident, my younger brother was my witness. Unfortunately, he passed away three years ago in 2017. This incident that happened was when my brother picked me up from the airport. On the way to his house, we were in his car, and someone walked up to me and spit in my face. Moving forward to the night of my crime, that is what I was seeing while he was with me. That is the reason why I snapped. I do believe, and let's go back to Ben. Ben had, my, my late husband had a mental illness, and, and that's why he took his life. He was not in his right mind. And the church, the Catholic church and the Jewish faith as well uh, have put out messages and memos that people that take their own life are not considered to be, you know, murderers and they're not going to go to hell. They, they have improved that whole, you know, stigma because they're not in their right mind. And I do believe that Levy, even though he did this horrible thing and it's not to be forgiven and all this stuff, but he was not in his right mind. And and I'm not saying that as an excuse. I'm just saying that this is mental illness. This is why I wrote my book. This is why I'm going to write book two, which these two stories that we're talking about is going to be in my second book. It is to help people with mental illness and 15% 15% of the proceeds of my book are going to to survivors of suicide organizations, suicide prevention organizations. Um, I hope we're, hopefully we're going to put the link up, Scott, too, for the, you know, the suicide hotline. One of the things that they ask us in AA or, or NA when we're going through the steps and stuff, you know, the, we talk about how sometimes, you know, we're, we're either at the brink of suicide or homicide. Like, if, I, if I'm not going to kill myself, you know, I might end up killing somebody else. So uh, they are related. Uh, one of my one of my feelings of guilt that I have for what happened to Libby Kletsky, and I know it's not necessarily rational because it might have happened to my son, but the first thing that I thought of was if I had married him, Libby Kletsky would still be alive. And, and that's what I felt because I felt like I would have gotten Levy help. I feel like, but everybody told me, then you or your son might be dead. And I do understand that, but you know. That, that's part of what I I find so, it's pretty intense to think that you're almost married to someone who had the capability of doing that to a child. And when it actually happened, your son was about the same age as little Libby who was killed. I'm sure that must have gone through your mind so many times. Yep. Yes, it did. And when when Ben took his life the week before, seven it was about seven to ten days before he ended his life, he started ordering me around. He he was making something of nothing. And he was he followed me out of the room because I left the bedroom to give him peace. Because he told me to to turn the light off and I left the bedroom and went out there. And then he followed me out there. I said, what are you doing? And he sat next to me and he was looking at me with this dead look in his eyes. And he started ordering me around like a dog. I don't even remember what he was saying. And I just got up and I started running to the phone and I was going to call 911. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to call 911. I'm going to call the cops. He said, why? I said, because right now you're scaring me. I'm afraid I'm going to be hurt. And he said, okay, I'm back. I'm going to back off. He said, don't call, don't call them. And I said, okay. I said, but you need to stop ordering me around and stop. You know, I was trying to kind of like 
get him back, get that look back in his eyes, the, not the dead look. And then he said he was going to get in his car and he was going to go somewhere where nobody could find him. Of course, later on, I, I figured that he was probably going to try to hang himself in the woods because there was an indication of that situation too. And I said, no, I said, if you, you're not, I'm going to be able to find you. He said, why? I said, cause I'm going to get our son out of the bed. I'm bringing him in the car and I'm going to follow you. I didn't want him to get in the car because I was afraid he might hurt somebody else too. He was so upset. Then he said, I'm going to take a walk. He didn't end up going for the walk. He didn't do any of that stuff. He calmed down. The next morning he reached his hand across the breakfast table and he held my hand and he said, thank you for not letting me leave the house last night. And, And then a week later he took his life. And I knew then that you know, I at least bought him another more week by whatever we had gone through that night. So, you know, I knew then that it could have been me or Asher or both of us, because you always have this murder suicide, uh, not always, but there's a lot of murder suicides, uh, sadly. And I realized when Ben took his life a week later after I was worried about my safety, I was afraid he was going to kill me. And then the same thing happened with Lady, you know, almost he threatened to kill himself. I got out of it. Two years later, he ended up killing somebody else. So. Well, it's it's clear to see why you have a, a passion to help people who are having mental health issues and uh, have suicidal tendencies and, and that kind of thing. There's certainly a lot that you can offer them for, you know. When they're going through something like that, what is uh, what's your website and your book? Tell us a little bit about that and how people can find that. My book is called Life Launch: Surviving the Storms of Physical and Sexual Abuse, and some of the physical abuse is these domestic violence and these relationships that I've had in the past. And it is the first 25 years of my life, so it doesn't cover these two stories that I'm doing with you today, Scott. But that will be book two along with a lot of other things. But yes, this this podcast is perfect for me because that's the reason why I wrote the book, because I felt like my whole life has been like, what was that like? You know, these extraordinary situations. So many things have happened to me and my family uh, that a normal person, it seems like, and I don't want to use the word normal to think that I'm not normal, but just in usual situation, an adult person might only go through one or two of these things. And I've been through so many traumas. My family has been through so many traumas. So that's the book and it can be found on Amazon. My website is www.drlizlifelaunch.com. I have free healing resources on my website. Um, You just click on the free healing resources link. And in my book, I have a lot of those same ones as well as links to the website and uh, other meditations and prayers and things like that in my book to try to, my book has actually been told by some of my friends and people that have read it, that it has brought up a lot of things for them they can relate to. And then I offer prayers, meditations so that they can kind of, you know, tone some of that down and help people get through if it is bringing up some, some stuff for them in their life. And of course, all my healing resources, things that I've done personally that have helped me. So your, your book is on Amazon. You've got your website. I know you're also, you've got videos on YouTube, you're on LinkedIn. And so we'll have links to all that as well as, like you said, the suicide hotline link and the memorial fund for little Libby, uh, the little boy in Brooklyn, if anyone would like to contribute to that. Mm-hmm. Well, just a couple of incredible uh, and sad stories. Thanks for sharing. Thank you for having me and helping me get my message of hope and healing out to anybody that needs it. Thanks to J.T. Shearhart for providing the voiceover for the message from Levy Aaron. And before we leave, I've got a couple more exciting things to tell you about. First up, right now, I'm in the process of learning who you are. Yeah, I'm talking to you. And I'm doing this through the 2020 What Was That Like listener survey. It's online at whatwasthatlike.com slash survey. Now, if you're in the private Facebook group, you already know about the survey. And that's just one more reason you should join that group. Anyway, I want as many people as possible to complete the survey. And if you do, and you decide to leave me your contact information, 
you could win the $50 Amazon gift card I'll be giving out live on Zoom on October 30, 2020. If you're listening to this after that date, don't worry. I'll be doing more surveys in the years to come. This is open to all the listeners to this podcast, and it's limited to one survey per person, and there's no purchase necessary. I'm doing this so I can more accurately know what kind of stories you want to hear. So get over there and fill out the survey. It only takes a few minutes. And again, it's at whatwasthatlike.com survey. And hopefully I'll see you in the Zoom live drawing on October 30. And in the interest of sharing, I have another podcast to let you know about. This one is called The True Crime Fan Club. It's hosted by Lainey, and I'll have her tell you all about it. I'll see you back here in two weeks. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my show is for you. I'll peel back the curtain and give you a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. Check out the episode Broken Bonds and listen to a brother reveal a deeply held secret. Or hear about the day that the heavy metal community will never forget in the episode Dimebag. These episodes are just a sample of our catalog, so you have plenty to binge. Just search for True Crime Fan Club Podcast and any podcatcher. You won't want to miss an episode.